0: Good morning Mountain Park, how are you? Good to see you, my name is Alan. My five-year-old daughter had a uh, difficult day on Thursday this week. She was late for school, and so the consequence of that is that she was gonna miss out on snack when she returned from uh, school on that, uh, on that Thursday afternoon. And so to, for my wife to remind herself of this, she wrote on a little post-it note, she said, Lila, no snack. And then when Lila came home from school, she had to be reminded of the, the tragedy of that reality. And, uh, and then she was told also that she couldn't go play with this friend that she wanted to play with. And in true five-year-old passionate emotion, she said, this is the worst day of my life. And what she did is she, she uh, uh, we discovered this later, but she found that post-it note. And she took it, and I could just imagine the look on her face when she scribbled out Lila No Snack. And in her five-year-old letters, she wrote, Mom, No Snack, (laughs) S-M-C-K, and put it on her bed. (sighs) That was her assessment of her day. That was kind of her assessment of her world there in that moment. What is your assessment of the world in which you live? I mean... When you, when you kind of step back and you're, you're going for a walk and you're just kind of pondering overall life, the world in which you live, what does it look like to you? I mean, we are now in the eighth year of a war on terrorism. Now some of you are intimately connected with that through family or friends and you're reminded uh, of that on a minute by minute basis, hourly basis. Some of you were reminded here this morning that that war is still going on. May I remind you, we, we are in a global economic crisis, the likes of which the United States has not seen since the Depression. I don't think anybody here in the room needs to be reminded of that one. There was a survey that happened just last month, and uh, for this secular survey, 39% of those who responded, it was talking about marriage and family. 39% that the, said, said that the concept of marriage was becoming obsolete. That the way we do life, the way we interact, the concept of marriage was a concept that was becoming obsolete. And in this survey, it was identified that 30% of children are growing up in homes where mom or dad are not married. 30%, which is an increase from 1960 when the number was 6%. It's now 30%. We live in a world where the Terminator is still the governor of the state of California. California. You kind of just step back at least for a few months. We live in a world where good Bible-believing churches are putting vulgar, uh, uh, terrible signs out on the road for people to drive by and see. <laughs> what kind of a world are we living in? That sign will be down today, just so you know. But it begs the question, what the hell is going on? Okay, if the Christian story, if the Christian faith is a story of Jesus who died on a cross and then rose again and in, as a result conquered death, if it truly is the story of victory over death, then why are we still dying? Why are 30,000 children dying in Africa every day because of malnutrition and disease, things that could be taken care of? Why are we still having to deal with the loss of those we care about, loved ones, the loss of friends, parents, spouses, children? Why is there still pain and suffering and evil in this world? Why is there still hell-like things happening in a world where Jesus has been declared victorious? Why is there still hell going on? I think it's a reasonable question, and it's what we're going after this morning. Would you bow your heads with me, <clears throat> Father? Once again, I pray that you would meet us here in this place. That I pr- I pray, God, that you would uh, burst through, perhaps our discomfort with with the title of this message, and that we would be that we would move into a discomfort with regard to 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 the. to to the broken world that we're living in, and God, that you would speak to that. Out of your power and your grace, we invite you to come and speak to us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. uh, Many uh, great stories can be summed up in just a couple words. You you could sum up in just two or three words some great stories. The Titanic story could be summed up as the boat sinks. Can sum the whole thing up there. One could sum up Star Wars just by saying Vader is dad. That's it. That kind of clink, kind of move the thing. Uh, uh, He's dead could sum up Sixth Sense. Uh, She's a he could sum up Crying Game. I think you get the the concept that I'm going at here that that sometimes stories can be summed up in just a few brief words. Right now we're in a series called The End and we're looking at the final book in the Bible. If you brought your Bibles, which I I hope you did, I invite you to, to go there with me. That's where we're going to spend our time here this morning. And uh, just, are the light's up high enough. We've got some uh, updated lights here this week so you can see. There we go. That would be awesome just so you could uh, see what you're reading. But we are jumping in there. And the book of Revelation really could be summed up by two words. God wins. The book of Revelation could be summed up. God wins. I want to turn with you to the first chapter. It's actually something we read last week. But I want to reread it and remind you of it just real quick. Chapter 1, verse 17 in the book of Revelation. Jesus has identified himself to John, the author of the book of Revelation. And here he says in verse 17, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. He says... I have conquered death and this is echoed elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus is victorious over death. First five chapters of the book of Revelation make this very clear. God wins. Jesus is victorious. Jump if you you will with me to chapter five. And uh, if you've been with us for a while, uh, last year or so we looked at Revelation chapter 5 when we we're looking at the song I will rise. And here chapter 5 talks about this scroll and that no one is worthy to open up this scroll. And this scroll and the opening of it is the fulfillment of God's overall plan. It is the end of the whole story. When this scroll gets open, it is the end of the whole story. And 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 here we jump in in verse 4. John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is Jesus, the root of David, has triumphed. God wins. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And as a result of that, there is a party, there is a huge celebration Jump to verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Before you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. There is a huge party going on because of the reality that God wins. The book of Revelation could be summed up. God wins. There was a party... In the United States, before my time, that, that I cannot even conceive what kind of party it was. It happened on April 12th 1955 and uh, some of you will remember that connect with that. This was the year this was the day that Jonas Salk made a, uh, had a press conference and told the United States and really told the world that he had a vaccination for the polio disease and uh, polio had been running rampant for over a hundred years and it was it was the 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 greatest fear other than other than uh, another world war it was the greatest fear for for Americans that it was um, it was a brutal brutal killing machine what it would do is it would paralyze, it would target children and it would paralyze them so they couldn 't move, and then eventually they, they couldn 't breathe it was a It was a cruel death, and there was no part of medicine that could take care of the the polio disease and it reached its height after the second world war for maybe perhaps as a result of the traveling and, and whatever was happening with with americans and so in uh, nineteen fifty two it was at its very height fifty eight thousand Americans were infected with this disease, 58,000. And on April 12, 1955, Jonas Salk says, he declares that there is a vaccination for this disease. And the country goes into euphoria. I mean, it, just, that it was just an amazing celebration. Apparently, there were, there were uh, uh, cars honking horns all over, like as if every city won the Super Bowl. You know, that every bell in every church was ringing and whistles in factories were blowing. Wow, this is amazing. A huge, huge party. Apparently, I mean, there was clapping and singing and dancing. And even city and state governments stopped productivity those days in order to acknowledge and celebrate the work of Jonas Salk. So apparently it was kind of like a regular day for them. But this was a huge celebration on April 12, 1955. But the reality is that polio continued to kill thousands of people. I mean, it wasn't done on April 12, 1955 there needed to be, va- uh, the vaccine needed to be reproduced, it be- needed to be distributed. By 1970, 15 years after the vaccine was discovered, still only 70% of Americans under the age of 20 had received the vaccination. That's Let alone the rest of the world. I mean, it was discovered in the United States, yet it was dis- had to be distributed throughout the world. Still thousands and thousands of people infected killed by polio. When I was in Africa um, a number of years ago, there was a guy named Green. He wasn't Mr. Green. He was just named Green. And he would walk over a mile back and forth to the area that where we worked. And he would walk with a big old stick and two stumps on his legs as a result of polio. I mean, the thing was not gone in 1955. So, were they wrong to have celebrated that day? Was it premature? Was it foolish? to have celebrated, even though the effects of polio still continued to linger on for many, many years. The first century Christians, they celebrated the fact that God won, the fact that Jesus died and rose again. They celebrated that fact. The followers of Christ did, and that it shows in their writings, it shows in their lives, But they were still intensely persecuted. They were murdered. They were burned at the the stake. They were thrown into the the Colosseum with the lions. We read last week about even the circumstances of the book of Revelation and how that was written, that John, the writer of it, was banished to prison on Patmos because he was declaring allegiance to this Jesus Christ. So there was still persecution that was going on. Were they wrong? to have been celebrating a victorious Jesus when they were still under the persecution of the Romans? Were they premature? Were they foolish? Are we wrong to declare victory in our lives when we continue to stumble into hell-like situations, when we continue to stumble into our, in our sin despite our good intentions? Is it premature? Is it wrong for us to declare victory when we still continue to stumble? How does does all this fit? See, it's true that God wins. Chapters 1 through 5 make it real clear. God wins, but there is another very important piece to this. And that is, the war is still going on. God wins, but the war is still going on. Jesus knew that this was very important for us to understand. He even says at one point in the Gospels, He says, He says, You will have trouble in this world, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome. There is victory. I win, but you will have trouble. God wins, but the war, the trouble, the tribulation, the anguish is still going on. The hell is still going on. It is critical for us to understand those two pieces, God wins and the war is still going on. It's critical for us to understand that as we embrace and wrestle with the reality of evil in this world, because if we just embrace the God wins part and we just kind of stay in this little happy Christian bubble that says God wins victory, 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 victory. If we just stay in that peace and deny the kind of presence of evil or whatever, it's, it, it's, if we give that portrayal that that's what the Christian journey is, it's just wrong. It's just a false portrayal. And, and it can be a problem for people to assume that once you become a follower of Christ, once you become a Christian, that everything will be wonderful. That that very day you can come home from church and your children will look up at you and go, Wow, Dad, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate how you've parented me. You've done a fabulous job and I want to know if there's any extra chores I can do on the side. <clears throat> that's typically not the way it works. We don't become a Christian and then our hair gets thicker and our bellies get flatter and our bosses all of a sudden notice all the things that we've been doing for the past year that no one else noticed. Wow, and we get trophies. That, that's not realistic. It's not the way it works. And the flip side is not reasonable either to just kind of stay into this but but the hell is still going on. It's still going on. The war is still going on. We stay there and we get depressed and we lose hope. Our opportunity for joy and peace in life requires us to understand these two concepts, that there's victory, God wins, and there is still hell going on. The war is still going on. Both and again first five chapters make it very clear god wins and then in chapter 6 there's a little bit of a of a transition in the story i want to jump in there john talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse i bet you woke up this morning and said i hope we're talking about the four horsemen <laughs> i bet that's what you woke up thinking the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, chapter six, verse one. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, "Come." I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. The first horse is the white horse, and the white horse is, the, is represents conquest. It represents this insatiable desire in us to get what we're not supposed to have, to conquest, to go get something that is not ours. Let me continue, verse 3. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword, The second horse is the red horse, and the red horse just very clearly represents war. It is the one who takes peace from the earth. Red representing blood with a large sword. So the white horse represents this desire for conquest, which moves to the red horse, which represents war. Verse 5, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, "Come!" I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Here's where it gets a little bit more complicated. But a black, the color black represents famine. And so what's happening here is that the the black horse, the third horse, represents famine. That the use of scales in the distribution of bread and wheat and such... The use of scales in that way is what would happen at a time of famine when when the price of these items just goes through the roof because of scarcity because it's just not available for everyone. There's just not enough food. And here, this third horse is famine. Verse 7, when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. The pale horse represents death. It's pretty clear in there. And the color pale represents the uh the kind of the the sickly color of humanity of skin as as uh, death takes over. These Four horses represent the natural consequences of living life outside of God's moral code. It's the natural consequences of ignoring God's moral code. What happens is that that we move from either figuratively or literally, we move from conquest, I want to get, I want to get, I want to get, which moves to war. I'm going to do the action of actually getting it, going after it which as a result of war, there is brokenness and there is, there is uh, there's, just as, because of the demolition, there is scarcity, there is famine, and then ultimately resulting in death. It's the natural recourse of ignoring the principles of how we are to live with one another. Now, this is not the way God intended it. This is not the way God wants it. God does not want these things to happen. I've known many who've struggled with that phrase, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Careful with that phrase, because there's an assumption with that phrase saying that God made this happen to me. God made this tragedy happen in my life, so now I'm going to try to continue to have faith in a God that I'm angry with while I try to work this out. Why would God do this to me God is not riding any of these horses. This is not the way He works. Let's not put this on Him. Careful with that phrase. Now, I, I, I think there is an element of these, these four horses and, and uh, slaughtering a fourth uh, of, of the world. and all. I think there's, a, there's an element of that with regard to the end, a part of that a story that I'm not going to claim to understand, but I think there's also a part of the four horses that is present now. That these four horses are running around loose now. And they have been for years. That these horses, they ride into different areas of our lives. They ride into our office buildings when people try to get ahead through whatever means they can, whether it's lying, cheating, or just stepping on the person next to them. Taking credit for something they didn't do. It's the natural recourse. It's the conquest, the war, the famine, and death. The natural progression that happens when we go outside of God's moral code. These horses run in our homes when we make selfish choices that have to do with our own preferences over and above the, the, the interest of our family, of those that we care about. And that can be a figurative journey through these four horses. There's a conquest. I want it. I want it. I want it. And so then there's this battle, this unhealthy battle that happens in this war. And then there's famine. There's a love starved marriage, which which often results in death. These horses run in in, uh, airplanes nine years ago that crash into buildings. They run uh, along impoverished countries where children continue to die. These horses run sometimes in churches when we treat each other in ways that are so dishonoring to God when we start pointing fingers and and judging one another and putting each other down because it makes us feel better about ourselves. War. I'm sorry. Conquest. War. Famine. Death. The war is still... Raging. The war is still going on. There's another date in modern American history that kind of reflects this concept of God wins, but the war is still going on. And that's June 6, 1944, D-Day. The invasion uh, of Normandy, it decided the fate of the war. Some of you are war experts, so I kind of have your attention now. And I'm not claiming for a second to be a war expert. But D-Day decided the fate of the war. But what's so fascinating about it is that really very little changed on that day. I mean, Germany was still occupying most of Europe. And the concentration camps hadn't been discovered, let alone interrupted or stopped at that point. Very little had changed. But the fate of the war had been decided. There, the war continued to go on severely after that. I mean, the invasion at Normandy itself continued on for quite a while. Then we go in we, and it needed to take uh, Paris and then France. And then there was the Battle of the Bulge, which was the largest and bloodiest battle in the entire war. US lost more troops there than any other battle in the entire war. This was after the fate of the war was decided on D-Day. All because there was this crack in the line on the western front. There was this crack through through the beaches of Normandy where the allied forces could get in, sneak in from the west. And it was because of that that it was dis- that it was it was it was decided, the fate of the war was decided because Germany couldn't handle all their fronts at that point. Similarly, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is like D-Day because the fate of the battle between good and evil, between life and death, was declared on that day. When Jesus conquered death, that's where the declaration came God wins the fate of the war was decided but on that day very little actually changed I mean Pilate was still the chief priest Rome was still very much in charge of the whole region Caesar was still Caesar in charge he probably didn't even know the name of Jesus he probably knew about some guy in some distant land that was a part of the Roman Empire Perhaps didn't even know the name Jesus. Very little had changed in one sense. And the war continues to go on. The war continues to go on. But because of what Jesus did, there was a crack. There was a crack, a a crack in this broken world. And because of that crack, the fate of the whole battle, the fate of Jesus, good versus evil life versus death was decided because of that one little crack because of what Jesus did on the cross and so since then with the war still raging with with hell still going on around us there's more and more love and allied troops going in through that little crack and every time we resist sin every time we make decisions that are honoring to God and wise in terms of His, in terms of how to live life, that crack opens up just a little bit more. We embrace around here what we call the seven sunawats, A through G, that when we ask questions that are truly coming from our, our heart that will stir up wisdom, when we commit to being there, when we connect with God on on an intimate level, beyond a Sunday morning experience, when we do life together in our D groups, when we extend beyond ourselves, that crack splits open just a little bit more. When we freely give with our time and our resources, that crack splits open just a little bit more. When we get in the game based on how we've been uniquely gifted by God, that crack splits open just a little bit more. And the Forces of darkness, they retreat. They have to hold back a little bit more. God wins, that's been declared through the work of Jesus on the cross. Chapters one through five make that very clear. God wins, but as chapter six says, the war is still going on. There is still hell that we have to endure here. Chapter six ends The last verse in chapter (laughs) 6, verse 17, reads, for the great day of their wrath, talking about these horses, has come. And who can stand? Okay, the the day of the, the movement of these horses, the results of our Ignoring God's moral code. The wrath is come, it's moving, it's amongst us. Who can stand? Who can endure that? And then he talks in chapter 7 about the 144,000. Verse 4 in chapter 7, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, those who could stand, those who could endure, 144,000. From all the tribes of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. Lists all the 12 tribes and says from each 12, there are 12,000 who would be sealed. That number is not a precise exact number. In fact, even in John's time, there was no clear identification between the Jews who were in this tribe versus that tribe, tribe of Gad versus the tribe of Sim- Simeon, it had been so many years, they had so intermixed and intermingled, they didn't even know exactly what their roots were. There wasn't pure tribe of Simeon, tribe of Gad. It wasn't exactly 12,000 from this particular group of people. 12 consistently throughout Scripture means completion. It means that there is some, God is completing something here. 12 means completion. 12 tribes, 12 disciples, 12 donuts in a box. It means that it's full. (laughs) It means completion. God is completing something. And that's part of the end story. God is doing something. Now, a very reasonable question here is, if God wins, then why has there been thousands of years of the war still raging on? What is God waiting for? What does completion look like? That's a very reasonable question. It's actually what we're going to take a look at last next week. The timing. Why would God wait so long? What does completion look like? Like I said last week, people have guessed when the date of the end is going to happen throughout history. We're not supposed to know that. We're supposed to live out our days, unsure of when that is happening, but sure of what we can do about it. That, that's, that's what this story is all about, is that we have the opportunity to decide if we're going to be a part of the 144,000, com, the, the, the complete number. Are we going to be part of that or not? Whose side are we going to be on here? We get to make that decision. That's what it means to be a Christian, to say, am I going to be on the side of life or death? Am I going to choose to embrace this Jesus who conquered death or not? We get to make that decision. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you go to church. It doesn't mean that you are starting to do good things in your life better than the person sitting next to you. It's not like running away from a bear where it's just as long as you're not the last person. That's not not what it means to be a Christian. It means deciding, regardless of who you are and what you've done in your past, it means deciding, am I going to align myself with this Jesus who because of what he did on the cross cracked through this broken world am I going to align myself with that person and claim victory that's what it means to invite Jesus to be the Lord, the Savior the victor in your life and this morning I want to give you the opportunity to do that. I know many of you here in this room have done that. And I think some of you are at a place of just wondering, I I don't know. I don't know if that's where I'm at right now. I want to give you the opportunity. Would you just bow your heads with me for just a few moments? And this is, there's nothing twisting going on here. This is just an invitation. This is just an opportunity for you to respond. To enter into the victorious life. So I invite you with your eyes closed to just, if this is where you're at, perhaps you've been coming to Mountain Park for a long time, you've been part of the whole shebang journey, and you're just not sure where you are at. You're just confused maybe. And you don't know if you have chosen life or death yet, if you have chosen to be a follower of Christ, or if you just kinda like what he says. If you want assurance about that this morning, I wanna pray with you. And I would just love to know if there's anyone in the room With that on your heart this morning, if you would just slip up your hand real quick where you are, I'd love to know that you're there. And I'll pray with you. If you wanna be assured this morning, yes, I see you. Just raise your hand so I could see it. Thanks, I see you. Gentleman in the white to my right, yes. Throw in the back to my left. Lady in the front. standing put your hands down let's pray to Father we invite you to come into this moment November 21st 2010 can be a date like April 12th or June 6th where victory is declared in the hearts of those who want to come to you this is truly a day of celebration so, Father, I pray for each person who raised their hand. If if this if this is where you're at, if you raised your hand, or, or if this is where your heart is, I invite you to pray this prayer with me, just to say, God, I acknowledge I live in a broken world, and that You came to break through that broken world. I acknowledge that I am a broken person, and that I need a Savior. I need someone to move me from death to life. I want to align myself with you, Jesus. I want to declare victory. I want to follow you the rest of my days. I also pray for any, any here in the room who perhaps have been a follower of Christ for some time, but the hell ish part of life is just is just so difficult God I pray that your victory would reign that you remind them that you have Mm -hmm. won yes we experience we continue to experience the war because you haven't returned yet God I pray that, that you would give strength and perseverance for all in the room who need that this morning We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. There's a celebration in heaven for those of you who responded to that. And we'd love to know about it. Please let someone know. Come up front, let me know. Let someone that you care about know. And we would love to continue this journey with you. God bless you guys. Have a victorious week.